0: Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to remind you that on our next show, our next supplemental episode, we have an interview with John and B. Joe Trimble, the amazing and lifelong fans that organized the letter writing campaign that saved Star Trek from the threat of cancellation after its second season. I had a great talk with them. They are so knowledgeable and so nice and had a lot of great stories, so tune in for that. I also want to remind you about our live show, Enterprising Individuals Live. That'll be this year at ConvergenceCon. You can find out more information about Convergence at convergence-con.org. I'm recording a live show there in front of a live studio audience and with a panel of guests made up of authors and Trek authors and Star Trek super nerds that are going to help me break down Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. That's right. We are talking about the best film? Question mark? We'll, we'll answer that question at the live panel. The answer is yes. Spoilers, yes. It's the best film in the Star Trek franchise. If you're going to be in the area or at the con, check us out. Again, you can go to convergence-con.org for more information. That'll be on Friday, July 7th at 8.30 p.m. at the con. So check us out. If you're not going to make it, the show will be available in podcast form from our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D, you can find our Patreon page. We have many tiers, or as we call them, ranks, at which you can contribute, and you can gain access to all kinds of fun benefits, including access to patron-only content like, our live shows, and also our upcoming DS9 rewatch and analysis. So go over to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod to check that out and become a member of the crew today. And with that, let's get underway.
1: It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know
0: what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind Alien Frequencies Open and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host Caliban and I I wish I had a beach to walk on, but the show, I give, <laughs> she takes. She won't permit me my life. I've got to live hers. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm joined on this episode by Dave Rossi, who has had many roles in the world of Trek, from being a supervisor of Star Trek projects for Rick Berman Productions to working as a production associate on Star Trek Next Generation, DS9, Voyager, and the Next Gen Films. He was also an associate producer on Star Trek Enterprise, and he's had a planet and several off-screen characters named for him on Next Gen Enterprise. Uh, he's appeared as an extra in the Voyager episode. These are the Voyages. He's worked as a visual effects producer in remastering the original series, along with Michael and Denis Sakuda. He served as consultant for the Marvel Comics Starfleet Academy series. He co-wrote and co-produced the Borg 4D attraction for the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas. He's, he's 11 feet tall. He invented the typewriter. His credits go on and on. Dave, welcome to the show.
1: I also got the uh, Medal of Valor, and I got... No, no,
0: right, no, that's, right.
1: Yeah, that's a different episode.
0: Right. Uh, permission to come aboard, granted. Today we'll be talking about <laughs> The Naked Time, the fourth episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series. One of the first and still best remembered episodes of the show. And as an early episode, it introduces into... 50 years of ongoing continuity, some very critical and memorable elements of Star Trek as you know it. And I'm very interested in your views on producing a Star Trek show, Dave, as somebody who has worked in various roles on the production side of a series, particularly at the beginning of a show's run. But we can get to that a little later in the show. All right. First of all, let's talk about your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan?
1: I became a Star Trek fan. I I had a friend named uh, Will Sadkin who was a Star Trek fan. And when I was about uh, – I don't know. I guess I was about seven years old. Oh. He had mentioned it to me yeah.
0: <laughs> and
1: was trying to explain what Star Trek was, and I, I had no idea. I was still deeply entrenched in um, Lost in Space. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I couldn't get enough of the robot. But, <laughs> uh uh, in in trying to find Lost in Space, like I don't know if it was after school or or what, I stumbled on Star Trek, and the first episode I ever saw was uh, This Side of Paradise.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And uh, I I caught it kind of right at the beginning. They were just beaming down to the planet. I see the guy with the pointed ears. I see the transporter effect. Um, you know, I was I was in, and and there wasn't even a lot of uh, you know. Otherworldly stuff as it was. It was kind of a love story, and right. Uh, but but the character of Kirk, um, just instantly spoke to me for some reason, and and uh, that whole scene in the transporter room where he overcomes the uh, effect of the spores was just. I was in from that moment on. I was just like, I cannot get enough of this.
0: How, how did you get your start working in Trek? I had gotten
1: out of the Air Force and went. Back to my hometown of Buffalo, New York, and uh, I was a repo man, okay. and uh, it was a uh, not for cars either. For that would have been easier, I think. But it was <laughs> home furnishings and and uh, electronics and all kinds of you know uh, okay, sure. appliances. Oh, God, it was <laughs> right. awful. And uh, my dad, uh, who it was later in his life, he received a letter from a guy that said. Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but we were in eighth grade together and we played baseball and here's a picture of our old baseball team and it was the happiest time of my life and I've come into a lot of money and nothing would make me happier than getting all these guys back together for a reunion. Would you help me find them? Hmm. And so uh, my dad volunteered his time and and, uh, I kind of helped him and we found all of these old men. Uh, well, not old, especially the older I get, the younger they seem, uh, <laughs> but they were they were in their late 50s, early 60s. And and uh, all but two of them, we found all but two of them who had died in World War Two. And um, this gentleman flew them all into back into Buffalo for those who who had ventured outside of the city. And and he threw this weekend long affair. They had found one of their old teachers. And they, I mean, it was amazing to, to see because at wow. first they all had to wear name tags. Uh, okay because they didn't recognize it they hadn't seen each other in so long well. right
0: uh
1: but then just they had a dais up at the front and people were getting up there and telling stories and i mean it was just the uh, kind of magical and it turns out that the guy was a he uh, was a vice president of a construction company out here in california and my father said to him, listen my son is miserable doing what he's doing do you have any work for him in california and he uh he had me come out in September of '89, and I started by literally digging ditches. And uh, and about eight months into that job, I went to a Star Trek convention, and um, it was in it was the Los Angeles Hilton or something. It was just, It was right after um, Best of Both Worlds, Part One had aired.
0: Mm, okay,
1: and it was all the next gen cast was going to be there, and so I brought my. Uh, camcorder. I was in, I had been in California, like I said, about eight months and I, I didn't really know anyone. And so I thought, you know, I'll just go spend the weekend and and go to a Star Trek convention and be with my people. And, uh, right. and so I was walking around videotaping people on the stage with my camcorder, which, you know, back then was, you know, the size of a Volkswagen <laughs> right. and, uh, and somebody stuck their head in front of the camera and said, you know, you're not supposed to be videotaping this. And I sheepishly put it away and apologized and he kind of laughed it off and said, I'm just, I'm just kidding with you. And he, it turned out he he was a a guy named Eric Stillwell who worked on the show at the time and was also the co-writer of yesterday's enterprise, which is a fan favorite. Sure. And so we hung out, um, we ended up striking a friendship up. His dad was there visiting. And so we hung out the entire weekend and the next that following Monday, I went to work. I'd get to work about 5.30 in the morning. They called us all into the office and said the company was bankrupt. Oh, no. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I didn't want to come back to Buffalo, and, and there was just no job market there. And, uh, and so I called Eric, and he got me an interview with the page staff, and I started as a tour guide at Paramount in 1990. And um, about 10 months after that, a position opened up on Star Trek: The Next Generation, the fifth season, for um, uh, a production assistant, and I interviewed and got the job, and spent the next 14 years on the franchise, ending with Enterprise. Right. And uh, and that was kind of my path. And then shortly after that, I did the uh, remastering of the original series. Right uh, and uh, and yeah, that was kind of the journey. It was a you know, I'm sure there are people out there who go to film school and and you know, I'm that guy they want to punch in the face for being the <laughs> luckiest you know right sob yeah for landing something like that and uh, and I I feel their pain, but it was uh, uh, it was no easy task either. You had you know oh, I no. had to work, and it was certainly on the job training. It's but uh, but I mean to land Star Trek of all things um, was quite miraculous and and quite an honor and a day doesn't go by that i'm not thankful for having that opportunity
0: sure and being a fan as a kid it must have been something of a dream come true to work oh on star trek God. i mean it's no lost in space but
1: <laughs> but what is
0: <laughs> right exactly <laughs>
1: yeah i mean you know there's there's times where you uh you know before the show started filming i would go down to the stage and you know the, they're getting the sets ready and so nothing was lit and there was tarp over everything and the carpets were torn up. and But it was still like, you know, geez, I'm standing on the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, right. or I'm in the engine room. And I remember the first day of filming, the very first day we were filming something in engineering, and uh, and I remember walking in there and seeing, it was the first set I had seen lit, I think, and, uh, and just, you know, you just stand, I mean, I, I don't know how to describe it. You just stand there kind of wondering what I, I was repossessing cars a year ago and here i am you know doing this crazy job and uh and so it's funny because my passion for the show i I really i i had no uh directive in my life to, to get into tv it was not something i was aiming for it was not something i was trying for right but but having landed star trek my passion for the property was so strong Yeah, that it got me in. You know, I would spend every moment there and my shift ended at, you know, whatever time filming, you know, started to slow down five, six o'clock at night. And even if they filmed until 10, 11, they didn't really need production assistance there at that point because the writers had gone home. But I was there. I was, you know, on the stage, anything anybody wanted. And I wanted to learn the process because it's uh, I realized how lucky I was and that I needed Kind of step it up, and so uh, so I did. I spent uh, every moment I could there, and it was just uh, it was just magical.
0: Now, the production assistant seems somewhat straightforward in that you're working on the actual set of a series, but associate producer seems a little more open ended. Can you can you talk about some of your duties as an associate producer?
1: Yeah, as an associate producer, I dealt mostly with uh, what we call second unit and insert shooting. Basically, what happens is when you're filming a series. Uh, over the course of three, four, five episodes, there are snippets you need to get. You need to get somebody's hand passing over a panel. You need to get the close-up of a com badge for some reason or some MacGuffin in the show or right. uh, you know, uh, whatever it is, a phaser shooting a beam. And they don't film those tiny sequences when they're filming the show because it takes a lot of time
0: to set the camera and the lights to do that. And you don't need the principles there for that either. And you don't need.
1: You, you, sometimes you do, depending on what the shot is. But but typically uh, you don't. Sure. Uh, it's a lot of hand doubles. But uh, <laughs> uh, and so we would gather all of those snippets, and after four or five episodes worth, we would schedule a day where we would knock it all out. And uh, and if the, if some of it would be uh, if it were a big green screen shot that they couldn't do that day, you know, then you would have principals come in. The visual effects team would be there. But that m- that was my function as an associate producer was to wrangle all the elements needed and all the personnel needed to get those
0: shoots done. Sure. Uh, what's Porthos like in real life? That's what I want to know.
1: Uh, his favorite bone is the one in my leg. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs>
0: hey, I was going <laughs> was, I was to ask, uh, you, I, I noticed that uh, in a bio of you or somewhere, um, perhaps in your Twitter bio, that you're a gamer. Uh, have you ever played any Star Trek RPGs or, or video games?
1: Uh, i I play, um, you know, it's a crime because I really have not a lot of people play the, to, to play the more atten- uh, intense Star Trek games, but we play a lot of Star Trek Catan in my house. Oh, sure. Uh, I play um, Star Trek Timelines. Yeah. I I play, uh, I just learned how to play uh, Star Trek Ascendancy. Have you played that? Uh-uh, no. My God. It's a, it's, only for three players, and it take its like a risk game in, um, it, it, not in mechanic, but length. It's okay, like sure. it takes five, six hours for right. three people to finish the game. Um, but it is really, but it's really fun, and it's so uh, accurate to Star Trek. I mean, it really is cool how the, the you know you, right now they only have three races. I think they're coming out with more, but okay. But the, the way the Federation works, the way the Klingons work, and the way the Romulans work are, are, are all uh, very indicative of how those species would be in real life. And it's all about exploration and forming treaties. And I, it really is a lot of fun. Okay. I um, check that out. <laughs> yeah. Star Trek Ascendancy is really fun. Uh, I've played, um, uh, I play a lot of hero clicks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which sure. Is a, yeah. DC Marvel game, but they also have an offshoot, uh, star Trek ship combat game. Okay. Um, that I play quite a bit of, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I, I love gaming, man. I'll, i you can always uh, hit me up for that.
0: That's great. Well, so we've covered quite a few episodes so far in the podcast, but there's a still a lot of uh, classic ones that we haven't hit yet. Beyond this episode being a classic, why did you choose this particular episode to discuss?
1: The, something about this episode, it was one of the earlier kind of Kirk moments that it's again, that first of all, um to see Leonard Nimoy's performance of letting those emotions out, I think is just brilliant. I mean, it's yeah those are the moments that you die for in this show. I mean, um, when he lets a little something sneak out, whether it's, whether it's subtle or gross, it's, it's always wonderful. And he really, uh, really nails it in this and, and gives you kind of a, the other side of Spock and early in, in the series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now back when I was watching it, I, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, a lot of people read Making of Star Trek or, uh, um, you know, these books that, that kind of told you about what it was like to film. And so uh, people like uh, like Mike and Denise Okuda yeah. uh, have an unbelievable knowledge of what it took to put that show together. They've talked to people like Matt Jeffries, you know, uh, right. yeah. and and uh, Bob Justman at length about, you know, all the, the different things that went into it. And that wasn't my... I wasn't hooked by the TV aspect of it. I was hooked by the universe, Yeah, you sure. know? Um, but the scene where, where Kirk finally gets the disease and, and that moment where he looks around at the enterprise and says, I'll never lose you. Never is just, I don't, know it's one of the most powerful Kirk moments. Um, it's where he kind of solidifies that the enterprise is a character. Yeah. And, he has a relationship with that character. And it's interesting because I, I think that as other shows went on, um, as Next Gen went on, Voyager, Enterprise, I mean, Deep Space Nine, aside from the Defiant, didn't really have a ship per se, but um, but the ships were never characters like the Enterprise was in the original series. Yeah. And uh, and that always made me kind of sad. And, um, and there was something about Kirk's relationship with the Enterprise that he could – I don't know, he was, there was a communion between the two of them, you know, it was really, really kind of neat. I I remember when I was, uh, uh, I'm Catholic by birth, and at some point in your your early teens, you go through something called your confirmation. Right. And I did, and we had this party at my house, and I had at some point earlier, uh, when I was younger, used a cassette recorder to tape all these star trek episodes off the television so i could take them with me and listen to the episodes and uh and that episode in particular the naked time i was i i, I don't know maybe maybe my uh, my dad had given me a little wine or something i don't remember if i was a, <laughs> but in celebration but uh I remember walking around to people and playing that portion for them, that sequence. In you know, of course, they couldn't see it. They could only hear it on a cassette tape. But me kind of explaining to them, you don't understand. You don't understand what's happening here. The ship is about to crash into this planet. Everyone's gone crazy. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I was so wrapped up and I said, listen to what Kirk says here. You know, they're all looking at, it, you know, it's family members and cousins and aunts and uncles you know and they were all looking at me like you are touched man you are just insane <laughs> uh, but i was I, I was so passionate about it to this day i mean it's uh if you get me talking about the these episodes especially the because I, I it's where i kind of cut my teeth right it's it's my thing you know um yeah. uh, I, i'll uh i'll just go on and on about it but that that episode in particular uh, once i saw it hadn't been discussed i just think it's so rich and so full of so many uh great character bits right Uh, i couldn't believe it hadn't been discussed yet
0: yeah well let's get into it uh we are talking about the original series episode the naked time it was the fourth episode aired although it was the sixth produced it was uh, first aired on september 29th of 1966 and the remastered version aired september 30th of 2006 It was written by John D.F. Black, who we can talk more about in a second, and it was directed by Mark Daniels, who directed, oh, a bunch of original series episodes, I think 15 in total. The start date for this episode is 1704.2, and your assignment, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Naked Time.
1: (laughs) Uh, uh, Let's see. Uh, The Enterprise arrives at Psi 2000 to study the decay of the planet Oh, it's twenty-five. Did you say twenty-five words? Twenty-five. Uh, the Enterprise crew is stricken with an alien virus that compels them to unleash their inhibitions.
0: That perfect. That was below. Yeah, I think that was that was that was good. I like how you came. <laughs> you came in originally as as a production person. You were setting the scene, <laughs> and then you're like, "Wait a minute! No, no, no!" Elevator, elevator pitch. page thirty-seven. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, some facts about the episode, as I mentioned before, this is a show of firsts, and among some of the elements that make their first appearance are uh, the fact that it's first established that matter-antimatter reaction is the ship's power source. I think this is the first appearance of the Vulcan Nerve Pinch. Uh, It was first filmed for Enemy Within, uh, but it first appears here. Uh, Scotty's probably one of his most famous lines, I can't change the laws of physics, uh, makes its appearance in this episode, uh, about 15 minutes before they actually change the laws of physics and go back in time. Right, exactly. Uh, Uhura takes over the navigation console in this episode. It's one of four episodes in which she does does so. It's technically the second time. Uh, the first episode was the man trap, but they used footage from this episode, perhaps shot second unit. And, uh, speaking of Uhura, this is the only episode in which all three major female characters, Uhura, Rand, and Chappell, appear on screen together, which they wouldn't do again until the motion picture. And speaking of Chapel, this is Majel Barrett's first appearance as Christine Chapel, who would appear 25 times in the series. Nine and times, one an appearance. Yeah, and one an appearance, too. Uh, she'd be on the animated series nine times and in two of the Star Trek films. And she's, of course, the voice of the computer in, oh, I don't know, like every series. <laughs> um, she has blonde hair at this uh, point in the series, And there are stories, I don't know, from inside Trek or just around, that it was part of a ploy to get her back on the set after the producers uh, were unimpressed with her as number one in the original pilot, The Cage. And so between her and Roddenberry, they're like, we'll make her blonde. We'll kind of get her back in here and see if we can get her back on the show. And Eddie Paskey gets his first lines in the series as Lieutenant Leslie. He appeared in 57 episodes of the show and he was Shatner's stand-in, and reportedly he was so nervous to say his lines, uh, he was only an extra at that point, that some of his lines in the script had to be given to Leonard Nimoy. And watching his performance in the episode, I, I can believe it. That's that's yeah. one shaky bridge officer.
1: <laughs> it sure is.
0: Yeah, not exactly a steely-eyed missile man, but he uh, comes into his own later. Uh, l- let's talk about the episode. I-, I have a friend that calls shows like this, episodes like this, uh, Crazy Gas episodes. Uh, because some contagion or effect makes the crew act strangely. And although Trek can't be the first production to use this trope, it certainly cemented it in a way. Because now every genre show, there's at least one episode where everybody goes crazy for a while. You're right. Why do you think these type of episodes seem to resonate so strongly with writers and with audiences?
1: Well, it gives you a chance to show the characters in, in a in a light you never get to see them in. Sure. Uh, Right. So, you know, you get to flop them all on their ear and and uh, (laughs) and and that's really juicy storytelling for for the writers. But it's also got to be just a delight for actors.
0: Oh, yeah. And it's interesting that they kind of went to this so early in the production run. You think normally you get maybe a half season in, we're setting up who everybody is and now we can kind of shake it up. But this is four or five, six, whatever it is in. Uh, suddenly Spock is crying and (laughs) Sulu doesn't have a shirt on. And it was, I think it was kind of a risk on the part of the producers to do that.
1: Yeah, I agree. And uh, uh, it's, I guess it's about having faith in what you're doing and, uh,
0: or, or yeah, or maybe having nothing to lose.
1: Exactly. And (laughs) also being, you know, uh, under such uh, time and budget constraints that you just got to crank them out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The episode, as we mentioned, was written by John D.F. Black, who was a screenwriter, and who's actually a Writers Guild Award-winning TV writer. Um, He was the first executive story consultant for the show, and he shared associate producer duties with Bob Justman on the original series. This is his only contribution, uh, a script with his name on it, for the original show, although he did contribute to The Menagerie, uh, the two-part episode later. And he did not get along well, reportedly, with Gene Roddenberry. Um, He didn't like the fact that Gene would often rewrite scripts uh, from contributors, even highly regarded authors like Richard Matheson and Harlan Ellison. Mm-hmm. And his own script for The Naked Time was rewritten by Roddenberry without his knowledge, uh, as was his kind of envelope script for Menagerie. And he was not happy about that. And he left the show to write for a bunch of other prominent shows in the 60s and 70s. And interestingly, he co-wrote the movie adaptation of Shaft, and he was an EP on uh, Trouble Man in 1972. <laughs> so he got a little work on some black exploitation films there.
1: I saw him in... The, uh... Uh, You know, these books uh, that just came out recently, Uh, Mark Cushman, I think, uh, is the author of the uh, These Are the Voyage books.
0: Yes, right, right.
1: Uh, And uh, so he did this. uh, Mark did this tour around different cities where he would go to public libraries or whatever the venue was. And and uh, he'd bring a guest with him. And he'd he'd, uh, in talking about the book. He'd focus on one episode. Then they'd show the episode to the crowd and then kind of talk to the guest. And John D.F. Black was his guest. (laughs) And uh, somebody from the. uh, Somebody from the audience uh, asked him what was the difference between Nimoy and Shatner, and okay. <laughs> uh, and he had a very interesting answer. And he said, uh, Leonard Nimoy wanted nothing more than to be an actor. William Shatner wanted nothing more than to be a star. Interesting. And it and when he said it, all of a sudden the kind of light bulb goes over your head, and you go, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." Okay, yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, but it was interesting hearing him uh, hearing him talk about those guys.
0: He actually uh, returned to Trek for The Next Generation uh, and contributed to the sequel episode The Naked Now, and also the episode Justice. That's the one where everybody's running around in the little skippy outfits. Yes. Uh, and he ran into trouble from Roddenberry again when he questioned rewrite instructions he received from Gene and was asked to leave the show. And his script for Justice was taken over by Worley Thorne and Black himself received credit under the pseudonym Ralph Willis. So... Being a producer and a story consultant clearly can be a difficult role, especially when you have many people to manage or answer to. And in Black's case, you literally have Lucille Ball looking over your shoulder. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not asking you to name any names, but have you been in a position before where you've seen conflict between uh, executives and the production, the writing staff, or the cast? Have you had to deal with anything similar yourself?
1: Well, it's, you know, yes is the answer. Okay. um, uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's you know I, I I would never call anything out, but you have to understand you know you're there uh, so long um, every day you're there right. more with these people than you are with your family, and you become a family, and 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 just like any family, you have these squabbles. I mean, sure. Uh, but frankly, to me, if there's not a lot of uh, impassioned discussion going on in your writers' room, you're missing the point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is I think a writers' room is a, it's a kind of a crucible where you, you know, uh, you're throwing your ideas out and and it's very hard to do because, you know, I've been in writer's rooms before where, where the writers have been so beaten down um, that they start, you know, anyone who makes a suggestion starts the suggestion with, well, this is probably a stupid idea, but, you <laughs> right. know, and, uh, and I've also been in writer's rooms where, where every idea is, is given ample time to breathe, you know, whether it, it dies later or not. And so, right. um, and so, yeah, it, it's, a, uh, um, yes, I've been in, I've been in situations where, um, where it can get nasty sometimes.
0: Sure. And I'd have to imagine that the time pressure in TV is, is so strong because you're just being from the production side, just, you have to get something out, uh, be it every week or whatever the production schedule is. There's not a lot of time for second guessing. Yeah, it's very unforgiving. Yeah, I'm always amazed amount of the uh at the amount of things that have to happen to bring a single hour of T V to the screen. Um going from you know, just going from an idea to a draft to a teleplay shooting, post production, et cetera, et cetera. I've heard that many film directors say about their films when they're asked what percentage of their original vision makes it to the screen, they often say ten maybe 20%. <laughs> I mean, in, in your experience, is it the same in television? Are there a lot of ideas and elements and set pieces that are jettisoned or scrapped as time and resources run out or is everything planned out sort of to the letter? We got to get it done like this.
1: <laughs> well, yes, everything is planned out. I mean, we, when we did our shows, there were two production meetings. So the, the cycle was your show is in pre-production For a week, it's, I mean, that's aside from writing. The writing is always being done. But pre-production for a week, production for a week, and then post-production. The editor, I think, the editor got a week or maybe a week and a half to edit their episode together. But uh, And then it's in post-production for the next couple of months. But um, uh, TV is a lot different than motion pictures in that. The real power in um, motion pictures does lie with the director. Um, They're uh, they're able now, maybe not so much script because that happens a lot beforehand. But if they wanted to get into it, they could and and probably do. But um, uh, but they are the real driving force behind all the decisions that are made. Whereas on television production, it's the executive producer. Uh-huh. That drives the show and these, these directors are coming in, you know, um, we had a stable of, oh, I don't know, 15 directors that we'd use uh, across various seasons. And uh, and so in pre-production, we'd have a, a pre-production meeting at the beginning of the week. That's every department head, the writer, the director, the producers, uh, we would all get around a table and go through the script page by page so that every department knew exactly what they needed and you could head off any, you know, trouble there. I mean, there was always there was always a, a, a kind of a funny gag in, in that a script would come in and it would say 10 forward is crowded with, you know, 15 people. And you right. uh, had a producer named David Livingston who who was uh, kind of the, the joke with him was he would you know by the time you were done with that meeting, you had
0: four. Extras. Right, yeah,
1: right. <laughs> Crossing in front of the <laughs> back of the camera. But, Fifteen
0: uh, Romulan warbirds de cloak. Uh, can we do two? Yeah.
1: Exactly. I remember when we did the, when we did Relics, uh, and um, and we were talking about reconstructing the bridge of the Enterprise, and it, right. it's the conversation started. Well, how much would it cost to to do the entire Enterprise? And then somebody, the construction guys, threw out a budget, and then it was, well, how much would it cost to do three quarters? Right. And then they threw out a number and then it was, well, how much would it cost to do half the, you know, I mean, it just, it got down until it was this right. pie shaped piece. One that, pizza slice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That we could use. But so that's, you know, all of those things are, are determined, hopefully in the pre-production and production meetings, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, that happen, so that once you're on set, um, everything just kind of goes. And with Star Trek. Uh, starting with the next generation, especially by the time I got there, it was a well-oiled machine. Um, We didn't have any uh, input in in as much from the studio or from networks. I mean, they were just letting us kind of go with it and the show just kept gaining popularity. And, and so we had a certain kind of autonomy that was, that was great. And it was all I'd ever known. And then when we got onto, when UPN started getting involved and in the later shows, uh, it they wanted to have a lot more input, and we, we you know we weren't okay. uh, uh, we weren't you know used to that. It was like what I'm do you sure. what do you mean We're <laughs> and and that's typically how every show is run but right. uh we had a lot of freedom and so it was great and but but you could always run into you know something goes wrong on set and and um whether that is uh mechanical whether it's something somebody you realize there's something wrong with the script you realize there's a uh, whatever it is, I mean, personality conflict. Who who, who knows? Right. It can really sidetrack you and screw you up. Because as you were saying, you don't have the luxury of pushing it and saying, "Let's just do it next month." I mean, this this show's got to deliver. Yeah. So right. so you gotta you gotta figure out how to get around it.
0: Here's an off the wall question: How'd you get involved with the Borg uh, 4D?
1: In my kind of slow climb, sure. I. Uh, uh, after being Mary Howard's assistant, she was the line producer of the show, uh, Rick Berman tapped me to be his assistant. And um, a few months into that, he realized that he had an asset in me that was unlike most of his assistants in that, you know, he was dealing with two shows and often a feature film. Yeah. And yet the show was was – so popular that the studio was trying to exploit it in, in any way they could from a licensing standpoint, from a standpoint marketing publicity, yeah. whatever they could do. And that took up a lot of time. And, and so Rick created a position for me called supervisor of Star Trek projects. And that was really my main function starting, uh, at the last, right about the last season of next gen first season of, Of Voyager, sometime in that span. Okay. Uh, um, In that, I would go and have a weekly meeting with the consumer products people, with the licensing people, with uh, anybody who was doing anything with the show, Uh so that Rick didn't have to do it. Sure. So, all these kind of proposals came to me, and um, Star Trek The Experience in Las Vegas was one of those projects where Rick was involved in the writing of it. But as far as the day-to-day uh, moving along getting them assets making sure that characters are saying the right things and right, the look right. of the thing, you know all that kind of stuff felt to me and uh, in working with the group that was doing it, a group called Paramount parks that doesn't exist anymore uh-huh. um, well they exist in a different form but um, uh, but Paramount Parks um, ran with it and worked with us and uh, a few years into it, you know they had i don 't know if you 'd ever been to Star Trek the experience,
0: but no, I regret that I never got to drink uh, rectogeno at corks <laughs>
1: right exactly it was it was a very very cool uh, uh, attraction and yeah. uh, it had two identical bridges to uh, to deal with the guest capacity and so you would you would go through this adventure on the enterprise walking through these reconstructed sets and then you would go down to a simulator which was a shuttlecraft and you would have this experience where you get you know uh, you go from the 24th century back to our current time and they let you off and you're back at the at the las vegas hilton sure and uh and eventually the as when sales started to dip a little they got rid of one of the bridges and turned that into the borg
0: experience okay okay
1: and so you could go to the Enterprise or you could go on and do this Voyager experience, which sure. uh, dealt with Uh And so that's – and so again, I was – it was just part of my function when anything that was uh, not filming on stage at that moment as a TV show or a movie came to be, that, that would fall onto my desk.
0: So let's talk about the fun stuff. Uh, not that that wasn't fun. <laughs> this episode <laughs> this episode is always on top 10 lists of the best TOS episodes and even the best Trek episodes in general. Um, but is it a good episode? Uh, in his TOS recaps for Tor.com, author Keith DeCandido calls this a dumb episode, quote unquote. But I can't help but get caught up, I think, in the action of this show. I mean, one aspect of a quote-unquote crazy gas episode is that you like you mentioned the writers and the cast get to push the characters in new directions and i think every member of the cast here gets to add really interesting and entertaining grace notes to their performances is there a moment or character that really stands up for you
1: uh yeah i mean as i said at the beginning the, the first the moment with spock sure. where uh where he's having this kind of emotional breakdown and uh and you see that that whole human side of him just kind of ooze out onto the table. Yeah. Um, uh, and to date, you're so used to him being this other character. And, uh, Mm -hmm. so that's a, that's a powerful moment. And, uh, and again, then when Kirk realizes he's got it and he starts, you know, (laughs) waxing poetic about the enterprise and, and what a burden it is to be a captain and, and uh and there's this moment man when when Scotty bursts into the room and Kirk says Scotty help and he never gets it out he, ne- he you know he's just fighting tooth and nail to to maintain control yeah in this crisis and and it's at that moment where Spock kind of, you know, just overcomes it by himself. And, right. uh, you <laughs> know, his, <laughs> yeah, his his Vulcanness, you know, uh, uh, takes control and, and kicks this thing out of his system. But he turns to Scotty and starts, you know, giving the commands. We're going to do this and this and this. And Kirk turns to them and he's like, you know, get get it done, guys. Just go get it done. And he looks at the Enterprise and he's just like, you know. It's just this not yet moment, not yet, man. We're gonna get through this. You and me, right. we're gonna get through this, and and it really just cemented my love of Kirk and the Enterprise. You know, it's funny because I my mom was just here visiting from Buffalo, and and uh, we were talking about when I was a kid, and, and she was telling my kids what what it was like living with me as a Star Trek fan, and <laughs> and uh, at one point we were talking about how. Most kids my age at that time, you know, twelve years old or whatever it was at the time we were talking about, had this iconic poster of Farrah Fawcett on their wall. Oh, sure. You know, she's in the red bathing suit and the you know, right. Uh, and uh, and I had pictures of Captain Kirk in the Enterprise and. <laughs> It was. It was. It, I had. I. I did. I ran Star Trek school in my neighborhood where I used the the Franz Joseph technical manual. And I'd have people over and I'd explain what phasers are and what they do. <laughs> I'd talk about warp drive and you know. And then we'd go play Star Trek outside. And I was always Captain Kirk, and my friend Will was always Mr. Spock, and we'd make tricorders and stuff. I because mean, they didn't have any toys. Back then worth anything that sure, uh, you know, and so I, I was just consumed. I mean literally consumed by it and that episode is one of the episodes that and those performances are are what helped
0: propel that. Yeah, Shatner is is pretty great in that scene and I think it's the reason that or one of the reasons it works so well is that. We I think even at this early date we know that that stuff uh, is under the surface sort of his love for the ship and the whole you know never 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 gonna lose you that sort sort of thing but it's not overplayed and because he doesn't get sick until the last act you know it's not too much we don't get too much right um, and of course they shot the enemy within just before so maybe they figured that was enough ham from Shatner for a while but <laughs> um, <laughs> now wait a minute who, who was the who said that this was a stupid episode uh, Keith DiCandido, the author yeah. I'm going to get in touch with him. Uh, he, uh, Nimoy also, uh, really stands out in this. And as I agree with you, that he plays that scene perfectly. Um, this, this is, of course, we're talking about the sobbing mathematically scene. I think they call it on the internet. Um, and as the story goes, that scene didn't originally exist in the script, uh, but Nimoy thought that he should have a moment like that for the character. And I guess that Black at the time wasn't really on board as as a writer, but eventually they got it worked out and he wrote like the bare bones of a setup for the scene. And I think at this point in production, they were pretty much out of time, like everybody was on golden time you know, or they were at the end of the day. So uh, Nemoy got one shot at it before they wrapped. He got one taken and he, he kills it. I mean, he's really great. It shows that even at this early point, he had such a strong idea of what this character was.
1: Absolutely. And again, those moments, those tiny little snippets and uh, where Spock is able to uh, kind of unburden himself. And, and uh, I mean, there's another another great moment, not not in this episode, but. There's a great moment in Requiem for Methuselah at the end of the episode where, you know, Kirk is lamenting the loss of this this woman android that he fell in love with, and he's he's you know um, just kicking himself for acting like such a you know savage and, and showing our worst face rather than our best face in, in trying to help her. And, and he says at some point, "I just wish I could forget." And he falls asleep on his. Table there, and then McCoy walks in, and he, McCoy and Spock have this little, you know, McCoy gives this great little speech, and and then he says good night, Spock, and uh, he says, but uh, gee, I, I just, I wish, I wish he could forget her, and he leaves, and Spock is standing there alone, and he walks up to Kirk, and he puts his fingers on his head, and he just says forget, and that's the end of the episode, yeah, and that in itself is such a lowering of that character's personal barriers Mm. you know it's such a a powerful moment of friendship and love and it's just like wow um to see spock do little things like that always just uh i think are always really really
0: fun yeah it's amazing uh let's we waited long enough let's talk about sulu fencing (laughs) Uh, Which we couldn't get away from, of course. Uh, Takei has said in the past this was his favorite episode. He devoted an entire chapter of his autobiography to the stars to this episode. And from what I understand, uh, Black, uh, the writer, came up with the idea of these uh, scenes where Sula would run around. And he didn't specify specifically what kind of sword Sula would have. He figured it would be a samurai sword or maybe a fencing foil. And he let George choose. And George picked a foil um, and not what you might think a samurai sword, because he thought by the 23rd century, humanity wouldn't just be, you know, going along these traditional you know, ethnic lines, supposedly. Right. And I thought that that's another really great example, like Nimoy, of a character understanding this character, or at least understanding the world, knowing where they want this show to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, It's funny, though, because I think he had a little I've worked um, on stage before. I've seen this um, in theater. You've probably maybe seen it um, on a set or behind the scenes where a character or an actor gets a prop and gets a little too enthusiastic with it. (laughs) <laughs> and supposedly he would uh he'd practice in between takes and he'd be running around and, and taking pokes at the uh at the cast and the crew and the story goes that eventually the crew got together and uh buttonholed roddenberry and were like look if you ever give george a sword again we all walk like it's over <laughs> we're out of here so he seemed to really uh, enjoy uh, his time with the sword and that comes through i think uh on the screen and supposedly um Mark uh, Mark Daniels, the director, had met with Takei and decided that he was going to do the uh, the whole scene shirtless, you know, be running around without a shirt on. Mm-hmm. And so uh, George disappeared for the next three days and he was just doing push-ups like constantly in his trailer just getting ready to, to shoot this scene. <laughs> but it worked because he looks great.
1: It works really well. And, and it's also, again, it's, you know, it's, just the, it's the same with Riley who it, – it's a real yeah. shame that, that Riley wasn't in more episodes.
0: Yeah, Bruce Hyde playing Riley, yeah.
1: Um, uh, yeah. than the couple he was in because, uh, what a great character. And, uh, and again, it's, it's just, it's a testament to the writing of these shows. Um, uh, I mean, as obviously as well as the performances, but the writing of these shows, uh, gave these people who, I mean, that's the first time you meet Riley and you fall in love with the guy. Right. You know, you just like, he's, he's a real guy. You, you care about him. You're concerned for his, his being. Um, I mean, even even the guy who plays Joe Tormolan uh, gives a great performance. And uh, yeah, uh, all of these guys, when they're going down this path, it's uh, they all get this this moment of uh, that they're able to revel in this character piece. And 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 you love every one of them.
0: Yeah, and Turmolin, uh is interesting um, as well, just sort of his short character arc, because he was, uh, and I should mention he's played by Stuart Moss, because he is depressed, or he's sort of a latent depressive, and, and this Psi 2000 virus kind of magnifies how he feels. But what he expresses is interesting, just the idea that it's sort of the anti pioneer spirit. Like, what are we doing out here? Like, we don't, we don't, we're spitting in the face good? of God. Yeah, what <laughs> could we do? Exactly. Which is so opposite to the whole. You know, the opening that, uh, that Black helped write with Roddenberry, you know, to, to seek out new life and civilizations. And nice. he's like, what are we doing? This is crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't have to give life support. And, you know, I mean, right. he, goes, yeah. he goes on the whole thing. Whereas, you know, uh, a couple of seasons later, later, Kirk is talking about it. You know, they used to say if we could fly, we'd have wings. And, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you wonder how Tormoran passed any test to get into Starfleet.
0: Well, he certainly didn't uh, pass the hazardous materials test because uh, you glove shouldn't... test. Yeah. Well, the, we should talk about some of the production uh, aspects uh, in the show. the The suits that they wear, the environmental suits, were apparently made from a shower curtain, and they definitely looked the part. Yeah. And they are uh, not protective enough that you can uh, take your glove off and, and scratch your nose, and then put your hand down, and some blood, bloody water can jump onto your hand, and then. Uh that's bad news there. So their their containment procedures are are not that great.
1: Yeah, that's that's you know, if you if you were going to say that the show is stupid, that's the stupid part of the show.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that does stretch uh uh disbelief a little bit. Uh yeah. something that else that stretches disbelief is the mannequin prop. Right. That is supposed to be the, the dead woman uh, in, the, in the research lab, and uh, I'm sure it's cheaper than a day rate for an extra, but it looks pretty bad. Uh, you think? They, <laughs> and it's not just the remaster. I mean, they could have put some more fake snow or like some, some styrofoam <laughs> ice over it or something like that, but it's just, it's just like a Macy's uh, mannequin lying there. It does look like a
1: mannequin. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty bad.
0: Supposedly, Bob Justman uh, took that prop and put it in his office to like, scare people. <laughs> he had that, and the uh, the salt creature, and a couple Gorn costumes, I guess, uh, in his office there.
1: Yeah, recently, uh, recently, uh, David Goodman wrote a book called "The Autobiography of James T. Kirk," and uh, and we had uh, kind of I had brought him to CBS about the, about the book, and and uh, I said to him as he was writing it, he let me look at an early draft, and I said, "Hey, when you get to Sci Two Thousand, can I be the guy who?" turned off the life support and jumped in the shower. And uh, (laughs) he said, yeah, sure. So now there's this entry in the book where crewman Rossi was the guy that in in the book, (laughs) in the book, uh, they, after they go through the time warp, David finishes the thought and says, so, and and he's – and Kirk is saying, so we zipped back to Psi 2000 and saved everybody. We got there just as the disease was taking effect and Crewman Rossi had just turned off the life support. I had to stun him
0: myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, Psi 2000 has got to be the best planet name ever. Um, but I, I'm trying to still figure out what's going on with this planet. Um, they're a little fast and loose with the science uh, in the early episodes. And sup- supposedly this planet is collapsing because of some great gravitational fluctuations. Yes. Um, uh, I think I think today, I know in the updated one, they sort of um, changed it to like a star, which is a little more believable that these high gravity fields from the star could affect these water molecules. Um, but as far as Psy 2000 goes, and they say this specifically in the episode, that it's a, a planet that's Earth-like or a lot like Earth. And it puts me in the mind of all the planets they'd pull up to in the original series that are like, my God, Spock! It's just like Earth, and there you see North America. There must have been like five or six planets that were just somehow counter Earths, and I'm sure that was to that was to save a little money. But you couldn't just put like a cloudy red planet or a purple planet there instead. <laughs> Every week they're pulling up to some other Earth. It's like it's it's just like Earth.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, uh, the universe turns out to
0: have a uh, striking similarity it's a in its mechanics. Amount of Earths, yeah. <laughs> Uh, this uh, just with everything going on, I think this is probably the most um, animated, gifable episode uh, with all the slapping between Kirk and Spock, and the and the fencing, and the mathematical sobbing. It's a pretty funny episode. Uh, did you have a favorite uh, joke or a comedy bit from the episode? Uh,
1: I think when Sulu gets onto the bridge and Uhura says, "Sorry, neither," uh, for the
0: fair maiden comment. Yeah, for the yeah. fair maiden. Uh, you know, I that's, like that. It's another great little uh, uh, grace note uh, for a character for Uhura as well.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and all the, I mean, anything with Riley was, you know, there'll be no ice cream for you tonight. I mean, all that, all that stuff was, was yeah. good. But you know, it's, it's interesting that at, when, uh, when I went to this Cushman thing and I had my kids with me and we, they were, they were showing that episode on the screen and, uh, you know, the, the place had, I don't know, 60, 70 people in it. And you got to think they're all Star Trek fans. You're there to see a guy talk about the making of a Star Trek series and John D.F. Black is going to be the guest and and they're going to show this episode Mm. and the amount of laughter happened during that episode when it to me was really inappropriate. Okay. well, it was it kind of shocked me. And, And so the next day on Twitter, I mentioned something about it and somebody kind of fired back at me and said, you know. Well, you be a fan the way you're a fan, and we'll be a fan the way we're a fan. If we want to laugh at it, we can laugh at it. And I'm like, yeah, you know, when when Spock is having his meltdown, I I don't know. Where's the humor? Yeah, yeah. What's what's the funny part of that?
0: I, I you know I don't yeah, know. Certainly in the context of the episode, yeah,
1: yeah. It really struck me. I, look, I get that. You know, uh, Shatner's acting technique can sometimes. Blow up the scenery around him, but <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just interesting to me that that these Star Trek fans had poured out, and that and that there was all this laughter going on. And I was just kind of sitting there, going, "What are they laughing at, man? This is right. this is heady
0: stuff. They're this in trouble." Heady, <laughs> <big deal>. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, speaking of Shatner, I think my favorite part is he's. You know, he spends. It's weird what who gets affected and who doesn't because it's, it's supposedly through sweat. Yeah. And uh, uh, Sulu bodily grabs Uhura, and she's not affected, at least appreciably. But the whole time, Kirk and Uhura, he's telling her, I've got to find Spock, I've got to find Spock. Then he finally runs down to like the briefing room, and he's found her. And Uhura calls him on the comm, and she's like, uh, have you found Mr. He's like, yes, I found Mr. Spock, I'm talking to talking Mr. Spock! To Mr. Spock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most of the, I guess, this episode would be considered a bottle show. I mean, it takes place mostly on the ship, and there's no real guest stars or anything like that. Um, is this, in in your opinion, a bottle show? From a production side, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the um, the episode order in the original series is kind of wonky because a lot of the episodes air out of order, um, not only of production but even in their intended order of continuity. Um, Like the man trap was the first broadcast episode, but it's not a bad intro to the series, but it's not the actual pilot or the second pilot. Um, And I take it that even modern series is probably struggle with this sometimes, but would you say there's a more of a focus on continuity now just with fans being more plugged in?
1: Yes, there is. And especially, you know, I think, well, I don't know. I I guess, uh, I guess it might be the Sopranos that kind of kicked off, you know, the season long arc. Um, Right, right. For a show, and uh, and and a lot of shows now, you know that's look. That's how you want to watch them, right? I mean, that's right. uh, That's the the, real meat when you're watching these shows, and so, um, you know, things like, I guess you could say the X Files did it too, to a certain extent, but they had a lot of standalone episodes. Um, But yeah, I think today there's much more of a, a need for continuity, and part of that might be that it's a syndication game as well.
0: Yeah, and physical Um, media, streaming, and all that stuff, too.
1: Exactly, just the way people consume their media now. I mean, you know, people like to binge on shows now. And so there's a, a, you know, that's a new form of storytelling as far as TV goes. Um, And even when we did things like, you know, uh, I remember having a conversation, I think it was about Voyager. We were doing uh, maybe Year of Hell or... Something and and we talked about what if we left? What if we left the Voyager, you know, badly beat up for the rest of the season, and there's slow it slowly gets repaired, you know, as the as we keep going. So it's not such a hard reset button that we hit, and uh, and the the answer came down to syndication. And okay. It was like no, because these are as standalone episodes. If you tune in one week and all of a sudden the, the Voyager is just trashed, you are going to wonder why, and there is no right. reason for it.
0: Right, that's interesting because that I mean I think that myself included, but a lot of fans think that that is one of the problems of the show. Just sort of because the, the the pitch, the premise was that you know they're out there; it's going to be hard scrabble. They're in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, every week a shuttlecraft blows up, or they're getting more shuttlecrafts, and and the whole resource game was never a big part of it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This episode was also originally planned to be a two-parter, with the Enterprise actually traveling farther back in time. They do invent time travel at the end of this episode, and I think that second half was eventually reworked as Tomorrow is Yesterday. But uh, we leave the crew at the end, having found a workable form of time travel, which, of course, will feature in later episodes of every version of Trek. I think um probably most notoriously in Star Trek 4. Right. Uh yeah, which is still I think adjusted for inflation the most successful Star Trek movie. I don't know, maybe the 2009 beat that, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. What did you think of uh, what do you think of the new universe?
0: I was going to ask you that. But I'll answer first. <laughs> um I I was just talking to uh Alan Gratz, uh, an author who was another guest on the show, and we were talking about the fact that it might be good in some way it might uh really please or service a particular audience but i spent the first two movies kind of with my arms too tightly crossed and my lower lip stuck out (laughs) that i could really enjoy it all that much and it wasn't until this third film uh that i really started to kind of get into it and i'm not sure if it's because they finally got out of their system trying to redo wrath of khan or whatever has come in the movies before but i thought that star trek beyond was Fun, very light, like light as air, but a kind of nice... Oh, you did a nice Star Trek... You know, you're doing Star Trek drag. It's like an action movie that has elements of Star Trek. It doesn't deliver what we really want from the show or from the original movies. Right. Um, but yeah, but the first two, uh, not, not so much.
1: Yeah, I, I have found that... Uh, and I I see the... Uh, the uh, outpouring of love for Star Trek Beyond and and it's great. I, I you know, I uh I feel kind of sad that I don't share it. Uh and it's yeah. not that I hate it or anything. But yeah. I, I have a weird speed bump in that, you know, look, like I'm a big James Bond fan. I am a okay. big Superman fan. Yeah. I can see those characters played by other people at the pace that they are and it doesn't bother me a whit.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I cannot get around that. That's not Shatner, Nimoy, Kelly. I just can't. Sure, you you are never going to sell me that that's them. And I, um, you know, I I mean, I don't know how you get around that, but or if you even need to. (laughs) I mean, it's uh, you know, well, I, I guess you you Rogue won it, right?
0: You're right, right. Or you Star Trek Discovery? It, which was going to be my next question. Are you looking forward to Star Trek Discovery?
1: Absolutely. I, uh, Good.
0: I hope it's very successful. And I, 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 the
1: one thing I'm bummed about in, in about Discovery is that I, I really was hoping the next Star Trek series would move forward. Yeah, yeah. And and we're getting another prequel, and it's just I I think it. I think it hamstrings the writers to a certain extent that they need to live inside this kind of confined continuity. I mean, they can do things within it, but, but you're still kind of, you know, it you know, where it's going you know, where the story is going to go ultimately. And so there's, there's only so much you can do, um, yeah. but also I would have just really loved to, to, to seen what a stab at a future Star Trek would have been.
0: Yeah, I know that they had originally, there was rumors that it would follow sort of anthology format, and I think they've shot that down um, recently, although I think it was Fuller that shot it down, and he's not around anymore, so maybe we'll get a chance right. to see things going forward. Yeah, and, and
1: you know, I, look, I think Star Trek works best on television, just as a lot of people do. I think you get a chance yeah. to, to get into the characters, you get a chance to um, spend time, you know, just with dialogue, not, you, you don't, you don't need explosions and barrel rolls and, right, uh, you know, so, um, so I'm looking forward to, to that aspect of it. And the fact that it's going to be on a pay per view service, um, you know, these services, the HBOs and the Netflix and the Amazons of the world, they only work if the product is good because the people, uh, viewers will vote with their dollars in a way that, that doesn't typically happen in, in, uh, Movies, you know, I mean, when Transformers 11 comes out, it's going to make a billion dollars.
0: Right. You know, it's just the way that,
1: that, that <laughs> it goes. But um, but yeah, and, and television and, and subscription services, they they really have to throw money at at making it good. And that's and that doesn't just mean production value, but also uh, hiring talented people to carry it off.
0: Yeah. That's an interesting uh, perspective because I know a lot of people who are dismayed that it'll be on a pay service, but having it on a pay service like that, that, that's a good point that you get direct like monetary feedback. Like, you know, who's watching uh, because people have specifically come and paid money to see your thing.
1: Yeah. And if you want more to come, it's got to be good week to week.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, As we wrap up here, did you have any uh, parting shots? Any last thoughts about the episode?
1: um go watch it if you haven't seen it if you are a star trek fan who loves uh, the jj verse or is an enterprise or voyager or ds9 or tng fanatic and you haven't really touched the original series go back and see where it started go back and watch these episodes they are really really good get yeah, you can laugh at the visual effects you can laugh at the sherbert colored walls we get it right. <laughs> but uh but They did something phenomenal. And the chemistry between those characters um, affected me and my life in ways I can't even begin to calculate. So um, there's something to it. If you're a Star Trek fan, go back and watch them.
0: Yeah, I can't help but love this episode. I mean, you can make all the memes you want, but you're doing it because you love it, or at least you remember it, and and it sticks with you, it's inventive, and it's a good thing for a sci-fi series to be. And it was iconic enough to inspire the naked now and to get John Black back so they could fire him one more time. So good (laughs) up. So let's talk talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Uh, Captain Kirk. Sure. Captain Kirk... um, Mm
1: -hmm. He is a uh, he is a person of action. He uh, is a person who um, understands the book very well, but also understands when it can be bent and when it can be broken. Sure. Uh, I mean, look, they're great. I mean, in Doomsday Machine how can you not love when Decker is quoting regulations to him? And <laughs> Kirk just says blast regulations, Mr. Spock. I order you to take command of the enterprise. Right.
0: Forget that. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
1: Based on my personal, I mean, it's just like, what, what are you talking about? But <laughs> it's a good enough for Spock.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. To say,
1: you are relieved. Uh, right. So, uh, he's just, he's just a force of will. And, uh, uh and um uh, you know he's he's not too stodgy he 's not too uh he's not too captainy in the way that captains can't be approached he's but but you never doubt that he's in charge
0: yeah. And I read something. I don't want to take credit for this, but I read something online the other day that mentioned the fact that he's on first name a first name basis with his um, uh, his officers under him, um, which is something that I don't think Picard achieves for seasons. You know, this is a guy who is comfortable with authority, but he's comfortable, you know, relying on the people around him and building relationships, and I mean, that that shows through. I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, look, I make fun of the the differences between you know, especially. Captain Picard you know we're surrounded by alien ships. there's a countdown clock and you know his his first command is conference right <laughs> you know and, and look probably rightfully so. but you're never gonna you're never gonna um, sway me into thinking that you know Kirk pulling one of his Corbomite my maneuvers is not the way to go. right yeah it's just too cool.
0: Uh, we were discussing uh, Darmok uh, for the show recently, and we were talking about how Captain Kirk would have handled that. And I think we agreed that he would have drop dropkicked uh, poor Paul Winfield before he could even get a word out. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> the, second, the second he holds those knives up, just bam, 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 knocks him down. Probably true. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you will receive a commission in the Starfleet at the rank of Ensign. What department on the ship will you work in? Command. Oh, Okay.
1: Well, I don't Starting know. I don't know if command. that's really a division. Uh, oh,
0: okay. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> Department, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess if I want to end up commanding a starship, I would. I would want to start in the navigation helm arena.
0: Okay, sure.
1: Yeah, I guess I'd have to do that because that's where all the cool
0: people started. You've got the right color shirt on and everything. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ensign Rossi, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, They can find me on Twitter as well, and uh, it's a little confusing, but it's (laughs) (laughs) it means hope, but the I in it is actually a small L, so it's more like lieutenant means hope.
0: Thanks again for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun.
0: We are signing off until the next mission. Haley frequencies closed. It's on your mind.